by Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. Brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Visit DairyLaneDental.com. I'm Jeff Carter. This is the Writing Report. And with me today, MPP, Graydon Smith, who is the uh, MPP for Perry Sound Muskoka. And also, he is the Minister of Natural Resources and Forestry. And welcome, Graydon, and uh, welcome to uh, the show. This is the first time you've been in studio since uh, I can't tell you. I remember the first time uh, that we actually interviewed you was when you were mayor of Bracebridge and we were operating our satellite studio out of uh, Nipissing University. I think the last time I was in the studio, at least my last memory of it, doing an interview in the studio was during the 2014 mayoral election. Wow. Uh, I came up and did one with my uh, competitor at the time. There we go. That's uh, quite a while away. And, and, you know, since that time, uh, you've left municipal politics and uh, found yourself uh, elected as a conservative member of the provincial legislature and uh, appointed to uh, minister of the MNRF. Yeah, it's been uh, an amazing last uh, last year where things have changed uh, a lot for me, but I'm thankful that I can continue to, to serve the public and uh, get to meet so many great people throughout the riding, which is huge. Uh, so lots of new folks and lots of new communities and uh, lots of new friends. It's been, it's been really rewarding. And lots of big issues that have landed on your plates in a very short amount of time. And uh, I think uh, one of the things as being a minister of natural resources is uh, the fact that, you know, aside from the flooding issue, which everybody here seems to think is associated with, you know, uh, your ministry, there's a lot of other things. And uh, most notably, recently, uh, the government has announced uh, their intention to, I guess, develop some of the Greenland uh, or Greenbelt lands uh, to uh, increase the number of housing units that are available, you know, in the province. And there's quite a bit of pushback on that from area uh, organizations who, you know, have been writing you. And writing us saying that they're opposed and they want you to oppose any green belt development. Yeah, and and I hear from them. Uh, you know, lots of uh, traffic through the uh, constituency offices uh, that we have, and that's great. I mean, that's why they're there is to hear the opinion of the public. You know, pro or con on issues, and and we get emails on both. Uh, you know, the government committed during the election campaign and won a huge majority on the notion that they wanted to build 1.5 million homes over the next 10 years. Uh, and they're following through on, on that commitment. And that growth isn't all going to occur in the GTA. It's going to occur in communities throughout Ontario. And there are communities that are located in or adjacent to the Green Belt that are also hoping to uh, experience that growth and, and manage the growth within their communities. I think it's important to remember when we're talking about the Green Belt, it is enormous. It is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of hectares that wrap literally like a belt around uh, a portion of Southern Ontario, um, and, you know, starting kind of in the Oak Ridges Moraine and, and going down into the Niagara region. Uh, and what we're talking about here is less than 0.3 of 1% uh, of slivers of land 
that are adjacent to developed areas that will benefit communities and benefit growth. Um, in parallel with that, the government's committed to putting new lands into the green belt, uh, specifically, um, you know, urban river valleys and, and other areas that are uh, extremely important to protect um, and a significant uh, portion of the periscope moraine. So there's a net increase to the green belt. Um, there's uh, the opportunity for communities to grow. There's an opportunity to, to build housing uh, as, as part of a, a commitment, which Ontarians said they wanted to build housing throughout this province to make sure that people have homes. And what do you say to the accusations by some that the, uh, I guess, development of said lands has made it uh, possible for friends of the party to buy up cheap lands that could never be developed, and then all of a sudden they can be developed? Well, listen, despite all the, the hand-wringing that's gone on about that, um, I sit about four seats down from the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing in the legislature. And he was asked that question and he stood up and he said, no, that no information was shared, um, you know, prior to the, the decision to make this happen. Uh, and I take him at his word. Uh, and I know that there have been um, some uh, opportunities for the integrity commissioner and the auditor general to look into this further. And, and they've decided to take those opportunities. And I'm sure what it will lead to is, uh, you know, a clearing of the air as to how uh, these decisions were made and that they were made uh, appropriately. And, you know, we'll carry on. All right. And so the addition of additional lands, uh, sensitive lands to the Greenbelt to offset some of the newly developed Greenbelt lands, why does that not satisfy all the detractors that you're basically making good on, you know, keeping sensitive lands protected? Uh, I can't speak to why it doesn't satisfy them. I can tell you that I don't read much about it uh, when I see articles and um, you know, hear conversations, uh, nobody really talks about the, the portions that are going in. Um, they want to talk about the portions that are coming out and they use a lot of hyperbole, I think, around the amount of space that we're actually talking about. Uh, there are maps available that shows exactly where these areas are. Uh, and there are a number of small parcels, again, adjacent to developed areas to continue development within communities. And these are areas that, uh, you know, many of these communities wanted to see develop for the, the growth and prosperity uh, of, uh, you know, where they live. So it's going to take all different types of uh, housing, uh, and it's going to take a lot of different locations to fulfill 1.5 million homes. Uh, you know, I think it's easy to oversimplify this and say, well, we can uh, kind of put it all in one spot and create a huge amount of high density. The reality is when you get into the communities on the ground, Choices around housing become very complicated. Um, people react negatively to higher density housing. Uh, in a lot of cases, we see nimbyism. We see uh, challenges with, um, uh, you know, not only certain members of the public, but the sometimes municipal governments that are, um, you know, resistant to to make those tough choices. And so, there's been a number of housing bills brought forward to try and simplify that, streamline that. Uh, there will be more housing supply action plan bills come forward as well, probably spring and fall uh, every year through the mandate of this government to meet the goal of having enough housing for the people of Ontario. Okay. Now, uh, switching gears a little bit, is your ministry currently concerned at all with uh, the upcoming flood season? I, I heard, read this morning that uh, uh, some floodgates have been opened in the Aurelia area to because uh, Lake Simcoe is quite high, 
and seeing as that's downstream from from us what what's the ministry's take on this flood season yeah i'll be getting briefed on specific areas throughout the province uh, as the conditions warn and as the calendar starts to advance a little bit more um you know we take it on a region by region and watershed by watershed basis one of the things that the ministry does is keep a a very close eye on water levels throughout the year in uh, a number of uh, in different watersheds and, and areas throughout Ontario, um, and and they can vary, you know, quite a bit from from one location to another, dependent on you know how many inputs are in that watershed and and what recent weather conditions have been like. So, um, you know, we'll have to kind of take it as it comes a little bit. Uh, we're we're at the mercy of Mother Nature in a lot of this. But the management of water levels is a year-round exercise. The, the regional offices are watching it every day. Uh, I was down and, and toured and spoke with the officials uh, in Peterborough, where the, the main MNRF office is uh, for a lot of the core functions of the ministry. And, and their uh, water management uh, room and area is uh, extremely uh, impressive with the amount of technology and the amount of uh, predictive ability that they have. That's been increasing over the years. And even since I was a municipal official to today, I've seen the communication really improve between the ministry and municipalities um, to make sure that that nobody gets caught off guard. So, um, you know, we'll we'll plan for the worst, hope for the best, and um, um, it, it, later in 2023, uh, you know, find out um, just how uh, severe uh, or not the, the flooding season is. But we'll manage it the very best we can. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be talking healthcare and the Northlander. Your source for community, Muskoka made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay 887. Brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Visit dairylanedental.com. I'm Jeff Carter. This is the Writing Report, and back with me is MPP Graydon Smith, the MP for or MPP for Perry Sound, Muskoka, and also. Uh, the Minister of the Natural Resources and Forestry. And we're going to switch gears, if you don't mind, Graydon. Um, some good news was the Northlander returning and uh, the fact that there are uh, train sets on order. Do we know when the actual service is going to actually return to yeah. Muskoka? So we're targeting um, 2026 right now. Uh, there's a lot to be done between... Uh, what was a fantastic announcement uh, just prior to Christmas, which was the ordering of uh, new train sets. Uh, so from uh, the engine to, to the cars that people ride in, they'll be uh, all new. Um, that, that really is a, a watershed moment and a huge commitment. Um, I think around $140 million by the government to uh, ensure that this service, when it is up and going again, is a service that really works for the people that, that want to use it, provides a comfortable experience. Uh, and an enjoyable one that people will want to use time and time again. Um, between now and then, there's still lots to be done in, in finalizing portions of uh, the business plan, getting stations ready. Uh, you know, ultimately the trains will show up and they'll need to be tested and optimized. Uh, and um, also finalizing the agreement for the use of the CN tracks. And um, you know, as we're as we're talking, I'm watching some CN freight trains uh, kind of move over your your uh, left shoulder. Um, just to, to make sure that, you know, the trains run on time and, and this uh, service functions uh, really, really well. But this government uh, made a commitment to bring this service back. People were upset when it went away. And when I was going door to door during the campaign, I was surprised at how many people brought that up as a really, really important issue to them. And, 
And, you know, the more I thought about it, the more uh, it, it, it did become pretty obvious, you know, you get winter days where it's not great to travel and people may have medical appointments uh, uh, in the city or they've got family that they want to visit or maybe they want to go north too and, um, you know, need to get to, to Timmins for a reason. And the train will be a comfortable, easy way to do it. Um, and I think an experience that'll be really great for its users. Yes, absolutely good news for Muskoka and uh, anybody living in, in the north. So that's great news. Let's switch to healthcare. One of the big things, of course, that's going on right now is consultations with the public about the plan for two new hospitals in Muskoka. Now, currently, they sit at, um, I guess, uh, position 1.3 on their 10-point plan to build new hospitals and the costs are escalating to the point where uh, it's estimated that the the hospital bills are going to be something like 800 900,000 or 9 9 million dollars something like no that's not right 983 million dollars is uh, the number that's sort of been bantied about and the local share is increasing uh, most recently, the MAHC sort of indicated that, you know, it's going to be in the 300000 or $300 million range to, to actually build these two new hospitals. And I'm not sure if that includes, uh, you know, like the local share, including, you know, furnishings and equipment. So can you speak to that? You know, like what is the likelihood of actually being able to afford the local share and are does Muskoka need two brand new hospitals? Well, I think the the, the plan that was uh, arrived at a number of years ago and had a lot of input from both the hospital and communities, and uh, I was part of that as well as uh, former Mayor Aitchison uh, at the time and and other municipal officials, um, pointed to uh, a way forward that was going to provide the best care for people and made the most sense, and that was to have two new hospitals. The reality is that renovating the hospitals and trying to bring them up to current standard uh, is an incredibly expensive uh, proposition as well. Uh, there is no free lunch in, in, in this uh, process. Uh, and so uh, the hospital is doing all the right things. They're uh, being conservative in their calculations on costs going forward, um, keeping their eyes wide open, uh, having conversations with the community about um, the uh, anticipated costs. And I think when you look at the local share, that doesn't necessarily all mean that that uh, number falls to the levy. There's a, an opportunity for the foundations, of course, to do the great work that they do uh, and raise a significant amount of money uh, through philanthropic means to support that. There's the existing uh, fixtures, furniture and equipment within uh, the two sites. Um, uh, a lot of that will be able to be transferred over. So that number uh, is obviously a, a big number, but it starts to get smaller when you get down to uh, the municipal uh, portion. Um, and again, I was part of the conversations around what that needed to look like going forward. And I do think it's achievable because the one thing the communities have uh, on their side is is time uh, and certainly a lot uh, of will from folks in the community that, that want to see these facilities get built uh, and are in fact necessary facilities for the, the communities. Uh, of not only Bracebridge and Huntsville, but all the communities throughout uh, Muskoka and, and East Perry Sound to, to grow and prosper. So, um, you know, the government's made a, a commitment to um, this project uh, and many others. Uh, we recognize that there are inflationary pressures out there. Um, those pressures may subside and, and wane over time. So I don't think we're dealing with the final number at this point. 
Um, and, uh, you know, we'll continue to support the, the multi-stage process that the hospital is going through as, as we have for, for this process with many millions of dollars behind that so they can um, do all the work that's necessary to plan for the future. Okay. And do we have any real idea as to when shovels and ground might happen when they get through to the very end of this uh, process? Yeah, I, I think that's more a question for the hospital and, and you know, what their uh, best uh, estimates are on timelines. From from my perspective, you know, I'm here to, to assist with the process, assist with the, the communication with the government uh, if there's any hiccups uh, and, and make sure that, the, you know, the commitments that, that we've made uh, continue to progress in an orderly fashion. Um, the hospital and, and the, the work that they do will, will help determine those timelines. And uh, when they when they finish this next phase, uh, I'll be uh, there on the Ministry of Health store to make sure that they have that report and they act on it quickly. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, the announcement that was made earlier this week about uh, I'm going to say uh, private clinics for healthcare. And does that have any impact on the future build of these hospitals if we're going to start um, offering? the ability to have a private clinic provide a service versus a hospital. Yeah, no, I, I don't think it would have much of an impact. When you look at the, the many, many components that go into uh, how you structure a new hospital, uh, it's not just around surgeries. It's also around, uh, you know, uh, the number of beds, the, the age of the population, the, um, you know, the chronic illnesses, the, the, the need for many, 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 many things. Um, but I think there is an opportunity uh, in the near term, uh, extending into the long term, to increase capacity in the system as a whole, which is why the use of these independent health facilities is a critical and, and necessary step to take right now. They're, they're not a new thing. They've been around for decades. Uh, there have been uh, different components of uh, private involvement in our very public uh, healthcare system for, for many, many, many uh, decades. Uh, if you go get your blood work done, you do it at a private lab. Uh, I've had diagnostic imaging done in this community, in this town, um, done by a private service provider. Um, so this is, a, you know, an expansion of what can be done and what is done uh, to make sure that the surgical backlog that we've had in Ontario that uh, has, again, been growing for decades gets dealt with. It was a promise the government, uh, you know, would deal with it. And it's uh, steps being taken to make sure that it gets gets tackled. All right. And, and the new plan, do you not see an impact on, I guess, workers in in hospitals whether it be nurses or doctors uh not being available because uh they have uh, i guess decided to take on uh, a position at a private clinic will so, that have any impact on the hospital so one of the things the minister i think has been been quite clear on is there needs to be a staffing plan that that makes sense that uh from a health human resources side doesn't take away from one to feed the other because if you do that you're obviously not gaining anything it's uh, and potentially losing uh, a lot so uh, I, I think the minister uh, has uh, eyes wide open I, I think she's taken appropriate steps to say to the public listen uh, we're going to expand the the services that are available in these independent facilities uh, but it's not going to come at the cost of uh, you know the function of hospitals and and what goes on there which we know has been uh, you know challenging times. One of the things they've been very concentrated on is having more uh, healthcare workers uh, in Ontario, whether that's through uh, training, whether that's through some some recent announcements to bring healthcare workers from other jurisdictions and bring them online quickly. So uh, if we're going to increase the capacity 
uh, within the system, we'll need to increase the, the number of people that work in that system. All right. Now, um, going back to the announcement of just uh, a few days ago, first up in the, uh, I'm going to call it the private health care scheme, is cataract surgery. 14,000 new cataract surgeries to be done when this system is implemented, which, according to your press release, said that's only 25% of the current waiting list. Yeah, so this is uh, incremental change. This isn't uh, a solution where uh, uh, a switch gets flipped and suddenly everything uh, is perfect. Again, this backlog has been decades in the making, and and will take some work to alleviate it. But it's a, an initial first step to look at cataracts and bring some more capacity to that system. Uh, there will be uh, other steps taken as time goes by around diagnostic imaging um, and some uh, relatively uh, minor procedures such as colonoscopies, endoscopies, uh, and ultimately maybe hips and, and knees as we get further down the road. So, uh, you know, it, healthcare is kind of a no sudden movements uh, type operation. You don't want to just radically change something overnight and and, um, and not be able to measure it and and make sure that it's doing what you want it to do. So I think, again, the minister and the premier have, have made an announcement. They want to take incremental steps to alleviate a, a problem. Um, and uh, the, the premier loves to be able to kind of measure those results and, and, and see the impacts, and this will allow that to happen. All right. And, you know, looking down the road, do you have a vision beyond hips and knees of uh, different uh, procedures that might be offered up in the, uh, say, second stream of healthcare provision? That's where it's at right now. Um, I don't have any information on anything that might be any different in the future. I think what the, they want to concentrate on, again, are relatively straightforward procedures uh, for people that are uh, low risk, that uh, you know can benefit from uh, their, their needs being taken care of more quickly. You know, if you have a cataract challenge, you want it uh, taken care of quickly. If you have uh, a hip or knee replacement uh, that you're waiting for, you want it to, to be taken care of quickly because it's going to improve your quality of life. And and so right now, you know, we're focused on what's been announced and and making sure that we get that backlog dealt with. It. And this will you know also free up capacity within the system uh, for those people that are waiting for um, you know maybe more serious or, or life threatening surgeries to have them those happen more quickly as well. Mm-hmm. And why is the government pursuing a second stream of healthcare delivery instead of putting money into the existing stream? Yeah, I don't think I'd call it a second stream. I'd call it a complementary stream. And again, one that's existed for a long time, and it's just using um, that stream to uh, a little more uh, kind of eff- efficacy. Um, I, I think we've seen that simply throwing money at a problem doesn't necessarily fix the problem. I mean, money is a big component of healthcare, obviously, because it's expensive to deliver. Um, but there, the, the notion of independent health facilities doing um, surgeries like this is, is not new to Canada. In fact, it's happening in uh, BC and Alberta and uh, Quebec and, and Saskatchewan. Um, you know, this is a, kind of an accepted part of, of public health care. Uh, and I think what's important to, to know is that um, this isn't uh, anything different for you as the end user. You know, the government is still going to pick up the tab to make sure that you're getting the health care you need. Uh, and, and that's the important thing. Okay. One quick question before we go is it will always be free no matter who provides the service. 
Absolutely. I mean, that's the whole point of our universal healthcare system is that you, you use that OHIP card and then that's what's happening here. That's exactly what's happening here. All right. We've run out of time. Thank you very much, Graydon. Appreciate you coming in. And uh, hopefully we'll see you again real soon for another edition of The Writing Report.